it's over 9,000! Welcome Super Elite Warriors to Final Forum, a podcast for the discussion of all things Dragon Ball. I am your host, Jelly, an elite recruiting member of the Frieza Force, on a mission to find the best warriors from across the galaxy to join the greatest army of all time, and I am joined, as always, by my new recruit co-host. This is the Bikini, and I have a very bad feeling about this. Why is that? Seriously? Look around. I don't see anything other than molten lava. Exactly. You brought us to a planet where neither one of us can touch the surface. That we've seen so far. You're forgetting the power level reading on our scouters up ahead. There's probably a place to land there. Then why couldn't we just land there? You gotta have a sense of showmanship about this stuff. We need to paint a picture for our listeners, set the mood, help people feel the vibe. I feel like we almost literally never do that. It's always just running away from something trying to kill us, or traveling to a new planet, or putting me in a situation that will get me killed. Nonsense. Watch and learn. Listeners, we are currently flying above the surface of Zeti-3 on a northeasterly bearing towards a power level of 3500. The surface of this planet glows orange like the coils of an electric stove range, marked intermittently by spots of black as the molten rock flows in seemingly all directions. Ahead on our bearing, we see several columns of smoke rise to the sky, as if Mother Nature's fingers were curling up to greet the darkening skies. Surely, a landmass of some sort, formed by rock coolings that meets the seascape, shall await us there. Hey, that wasn't bad. Why do you sound so surprised? Well, for starters, like I said, we basically never do this. If we never did this, then how could I have been good at it? I'm well-practiced, because we do this all the time. Have you ever heard of gaslighting? What are you even talking about? You know, manipulating someone into doubting themselves and confusing them to get them to believe that you're the lone holder of truth. Why are you explaining gaslighting to me? Because you asked me what I was talking about. No, I didn't. (sighs) You're being overly sensitive. Oh, come on. If you truly cared about this podcast, you'd just move on. You know what? I don't have the energy for this today. I'm trying to look for a spot where, when, not if, you get me in a situation where I'm going to die, I can sp- my spit can land safely without being immediately burnt. Well, while you do that for whatever reason that I'll never understand and you refuse to explain, uh... let's get into this week's topic. 
And this week, we are going to dive into Chaozu, the character, and we're going to do that by taking a look first at episodes 91 through 95. That's five episodes, so there's a lot to get through, but it'll be worth it, I think. We think. (laughs) (laughs) So we'll start with episode 91, which is titled Counting Controversy. Just as a quick reminder, last episode we started the bout between Krillin and Chaozu, and this ended in a cliffhanger struggle between Chaozu's Dodonpa and Krillin's untested Kamehameha wave. But what's this? Krillin waits until Chaozu fires first, he then jumps into the air and fires his shot. And it's a direct hit, and it looks like Krillin might squeak by with a win, but Chaozu manages to fly back to the ring before hitting the ground. What follows is a prequel to severe CTE, uh, with both boys regressing to goat-level martial arts and wielding their skulls as weapons. Eventually, Krillin puts a stop to this and appears to get the upper hand again, but Chaozu just busts out his psychic powers. Yes, that's right, he has psychic powers. There's some gloating, some threats on the lives of the Turtle students, and a watercolor flashback on the brotherly bond between Master Crane and Tao Pai Pai. Back in the ring, Krillin is learning what it's like to be my little sister's bar- Blorby doll. Uh, we don't have Barbies where I come from. They're, they're, they're Blorbies. Blorby. Uh, we even get an it was all just a dream sequence with Yamcha waking up in the hospital when Grill- Krillin is tossed from the ring and loses. Sadly, Yamcha's prophetic dream is starting to become reality. Krillin's been in worse scrapes, however, and quickly formulates yet another plan. Quick math. Uh, Krillin correctly deduces that Chaozu's psychic powers only work with his hands open and facing the target. So what does he do? He tricks Chaozu into counting with his hands by using just basic math equations. After that, it's a quick punch to the gut, some more quick math, another punch to the jaw, and Krillin's our winner. Guess those tutoring sessions with Master Roshi were actually useful in the ring. Who knew? Hey, the gang head back to the back. hospital. <laughs> The gang head back to the hospital to tell Yamcha the good news, and Bulma reminds everyone who the true nerd is. Later that night, <laughs> Crane heads out for some late-night exercise by attempting to assassinate Goku. As you can imagine, he doesn't succeed. Goku chases him down for a face-off before these stakes are, are raised yet again by Tien in a plea to face Goku in the final match of the tournament. That brings us to episode 92, Goku Enters the Ring. Uh, We open this episode with both of the Dragon Ball staples, Goku eating enough food to kill an elephant, and terrible pun names. We know this guy is a jobber, talking about Pamputo here, uh, so he gets the bare minimum of backstory. He's the skilled professional fighter, and he's also a devilishly handsome movie star. We get a nice build-up scene of Pampato, and uh, and to this guy's credit, he seems like a hard-working dude. Meanwhile, Roshi is trying to peddle his students as a means to score with, I guess, appropriately aged women, at least I hope. (laughs) And it's a little weird. They Um, seem to be, at least. So, (laughs) Uh, However, pandering to the ladies also serves yet another narrative purpose. It gives Pampato's manager a chance to do some recon. Roshi takes Krillin and Goku to, uh, like, kind of like the backstage area of the arena and does like some training to try and show off for these women. And Goku's performance scares Panputo's manager. So he decides to trick the kid into leaving the tournament. And, and (laughs) he basically is like, Oh yeah, no, we changed venues. Just hop in the car and I'll take you there. Uh, It all falls apart. However, due to lunch, seeing Goku get in the car and she decides to give the bad guys a little heartburn back at the ring. Panputo is introduced to much fanfare while Goku's getting the jump on traffic. He makes it back into the ring just in time and Pampato decides to make an impressive demonstration by breaking the wall of the ring. Goku beats him by the time he's thrown his first punch uh, with his actually impressive display. The Crane School gets some very good information on their opponent, mostly that he shouldn't be taken lightly. Goku and Krillin get some hard-won praise from Roshi, or I mean uh, Jackie Chun, 
who clues them in on just how strong the Crane students are. And we have now set the stage for Jackie versus Tien, which is the title of episode 93. Here we have what should be an epic battle. Tian Shin Han, top pupil of the Crane Hermit versus Jackie Chun, wise martial arts master with absolutely no ties to Master Roshi or the Turtle School, despite using quite a few of their techniques. The Crane School would agree as they're worried about how easily unknown Jackie Chun took down Manwolf. Uh, while trying to devise a strategy, they notice Jackie hanging out with the Kame crew, and Tien decides to get up to some shenanigans. There's some talk among the Kame crew as to what they think Roshi's up to. Eventually, Peachy Peachy Girls are brought up, and the old man just can't help himself, and Homer Simpson's into the crowd to find them. While on his own, the crane strike. They use Chiaotzu's psychic powers with uh, the cork from a pop gun to try and assassinate him in public. <laughs> Not really sure why that they would want to do that, but okay. Uh, fortunately for Jackie, he gets his head stuck in a boob tractor beam that saves his life. He gets slapped for it, but I think we could all agree it's deserved. You gotta get consent, my guy. A few other minor things happen, uh, but we're soon sound, soon staring down the barrel of, uh, of this, this match, both fighters unsure of the outcome. The opening exchange is most of the fighters feeling, uh, feeling each other out, with Jackie giving Tien a cheeky throw out of the ring. This doesn't work, obviously, um, because we all know Ch Tien can fly. After returning to the ring, he proposes they start taking the match seriously. There's another couple of exchanges that basically show off skill and speed before they start moving on to some more advanced techniques. With the step up and seriousness of the fight, we also get a nice step up in the visual quality. You'll start to notice uh, in these next couple episodes that there's a lot of uh, sudden improvements and reductions in the quality of the animation. <laughs> but they tend to coincide with like a lot of action, and, and so it, it ends up working out pretty well in the end. But anyways, our fighters seem about equal, and the episode ends in a stalemate, but we learn a few things. Jackie's stronger than Master Crane, and he also sees that maybe his generation's time at the top of the mountain is ending. That brings us to episode 94, titled Stepping Down. We open this episode on a truly epic battle, Yamcha versus FOMO. The fight's a dead heat. It's the best show in town, and our boy is none the wiser as he's stuck in the hospital. Luckily, one of the nurses was nice enough to bring him a radio so he can at least listen. Back in the ring, Tien makes the first move and is using, and he decides to use the sun to blind his opponent. He jumps up in the air with the, the sun behind him to try and distract Jackie and also to distract us from the step down in animation. We were talking <laughs> about this a second ago with slower and more deliberate choreography. But like Jackie Chun, however, we don't fall for it. Uh, speaking of distractions, Jackie, Jackie nearly gets kicked out of the ring when lunch decides to pop off a few rounds in the crowd. Uh, he manages to stay in, but Tien decides to double down and tries to bull rush Jackie from the ring with a few headbutts for good measure. Jackie endures and eventually escapes. This prompts a dialogue between them where Jackie asks why he stays with the crane hermit, and Tien decides now he's going to take the fight seriously. Next, we see the use, first use of the solar flare technique that blinds basically everyone in a 10-mile radius, you know, except for anyone that's wearing sunglasses. Tien lands a devastating knee to the back of Jackie's head. Tien basically declares him comatose, and Mr. Announcer, Mr. Announcer starts the count. Uh, they must not be going by Hoyle's rules, however, because as soon as he moves, the counting stops. He gets back on his feet and continues to moralize at Tien. Meanwhile, Crane is starting to put together that Jackie isn't who he claims to be. He uses telepathy to trick Jackie into looking for a peachy peachy girl in the crowd, <laughs> and Crane now finally has his proof. Jackie is actually Master Roshi. He tells Tien, and now that the cat's out of the bag, Tien tries to go for the disrespect by finishing off the old man with his signature move, the Kamehameha Wave. It doesn't work, but Roshi continues to hope that Tien will change his ways. Now that he knows his boys have a strong rival, he decides to fully retire from this tournament foolishness and get back to retirement. Next up, Goku versus Krillin. 
And our last episode for today is going to be episode 95, titled Goku vs. Krillin. <laughs> uh, this episode, titled Goku vs. Krillin, but it's actually Tien and Master Roshi Part 2, really, uh, yeah. philosophically speaking, anyway. After the physical match, Tien can't seem to come to terms with why Roshi would just give up and let Tien win. It doesn't sit well with him, so he decides to chase the old man down and talk to him. Uh, we get the same reasoning from Roshi as we did the first time around. He didn't want his students to lose their ambition, and so he enters the tournament to ensure that they can keep pushing themselves. He, he gave up when he learned how skilled Tien was and decided that his students didn't need him in that capacity anymore. Tien tries to rationalize this by assuming that Roshi quit because he knew neither of his students could win, and so therefore he was comfortable with quitting. Roshi counters by simply saying he's just getting out of the way of the next generation and that he thinks Tien will be an important part of that, not as a villain, but as a rival and a righteous warrior. Meanwhile, we've been getting a slow build to Goku and Krillin's match. They both agree to go all out, and they are full throttle from the starting gong. Their fight plays in between cuts of Roshi and Tien's conversation, like some sort of metaphor or something. Once the fight becomes the main focus, we are treated to some tasty visuals of the action. The only thing we're missing in this is the crowd getting fired up in a musical number. Oh, wait, we get that too? Nice. There's a silly exchange with Krillin inflating himself like a balloon toward the end of the match, but the episode ends with the fight unresolved and Roshi's words still echoing in the mind of Tian Shinhan. Yeah. I said there was a lot there. I hope we got through it quick enough. Oh, yeah. This is a, a like, this batch of episodes, there's some there's some really good stuff in here. Absolutely. There's there's a little bit of padding, but, you know, you got to come to expect that with, with a lot of this. When it's not the padding stuff, it's like really good. <laughs> yeah, this is this is one of my favorite storylines in Dragon Ball. This tournament, it's it's good stuff, and uh, these are like like I love. I really actually, especially as we've done as I've done like we've done more research on on Chaozu. I really like the Chaozu versus uh, Krillin battle a lot. Mm-hmm. It's just it's like. You watch it and it's it's fun stuff. It's never too long. And I even think the 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 Pan Pudo stuff is okay. Mm-hmm. And speaking of Pan Pan Put or Pan Pudo or Pom Put or whatever it is. His name's the most interesting thing about him. <laughs> <laughs> we have we have a little bit of notes before we get into the, the main event, before we get into Chaozu, which is what we're gonna talk about in this episode. Despite, you know, Yes, most of the episodes were not about Chaozu, actually. <laughs> and he still has a role to play in the final five, five or six episodes of this arc. But deal with it, I guess. Like, I mean, <laughs> we, we've said before, not all of our episodes are going to line up exactly with, with the the topics of discussion, right? And that's just, we try our best, but the last, like, Nine episodes of this are about Tien, and I'm, we're not going to devote nine episodes, I think, in, in one of our episodes until we get to, like, you know, Frieza and Goku fighting for nine straight episodes. I, I appreciate that, because that would be a lot of recapping. <laughs> <laughs> and those those won't be. Those will be like, there's, epi- you know, whatever. Yeah, it'll, episode... be, it'll be like bracket of episodes. It'll be like, nothing happened. And they were still fighting. And then, like... So, but getting into the some of our notes here that we have is, so when Goku is fighting Panpudo, Panpudo is inspired by a Thai actor named Pana Ritikrai, 
Ritikrai, I don't know, who was a Muay Thai martial artist, choreographer, director, and actor, best known for his work on 2003's Ong Bak, Muay Thai warrior, and for serving as Tony Jaa's mentor. Ritikrai becomes famous overseas, though, and overseas being outside of Thailand, in the mid-80s, about a year before Toriyama writes this chapter. Having debuted just over a year before that, so like two years before this chapter, with the film Born to Fight. He becomes popular enough over, you know, the time. And you got to think about this. This is the 80s. This is media and information moved a lot slower. So if if a movie came out in 1980, uh, well, actually, this would probably be what this would this would be 80 six maybe i wish i knew our dates better it's a pretty good estimate honestly but so if if a movie comes out in like 84 it's not going to get popular in 84 internationally it'll take a couple years for it to to pick up steam but so there becomes a sequel to born to fight and and pana ridikrai becomes the like go-to thai fight choreographer now toriyama never explicitly states that this guy is the inspiration for Ponput, but their names are similar. Rita Cry is an actor that Toriyama is likely to have seen. Toriyama explicitly states that Ponput is a Muay Thai fighter whose name is adapted from a Thai name. And so you put all of those things together and the, and the arrow points pretty hard to that's where it comes from. Uh, again, could be one of those things where even if it's not a direct knowing homage it is one of those things that Toriyama just picked up on enough that he subconsciously incorporated this guy into his manga which artists do stuff like that all the time what are you serious (laughs) and so then transitioning into Chaozu Chaozu, the name itself, means dumplings, another food pun. Toriyama uses kanji to connect Chaozu to Chinese culture. However, in kanji, the name is pronounced gyoza, like dumplings that you'd order at a ramen restaurant. So Toriyama then uses a katakana pronunciation to show that Chaozu is a foreigner and, you know, for more language jokes, his name looks like dumplings, but it sounds like a different kind of dumplings. <laughs> He's a clever man. This is this is another situation, though, where, like, you get into... We talked about in the first tournament when the announcer pronounces Goku's name like Gakea. And we talked about there's, like, a completely... And I don't remember what that na- way is anymore, but there is a completely different way to read the name Goku, depending on what dialect or something you choose to use. And Goku doesn't know this, and so he doesn't respond. Chaozu, because his name is, you know, written in kanji and pronounced in katakana, the announcer doesn't know how to pronounce his name, and Chaozu has to correct him. This comes off in the name as seeming like it's just difficult to pronounce a kind of odd name, but in Japanese, it's again, it's another language joke. It's a kanji, katakana kind of joke. It 
works a little bit better than the Goku one when it's translated because Chaozu is kind of a weird name. So digging into the etymology a little bit more, Chao refers to eating dumplings at dim sum, and Zu literally means child and refers to something as being small or childish. This is part of why Chaozu is eternally pint-sized and childlike. It's right in his name. Despite his appearance being one of the big sticking points for people who mock Dragon Ball logic for having Earthlings that eschew traditional human features while having aliens, namely Saiyans, who look like normal humans, Chaozu is in fact a human. Uh, but how can this be? He has white – and I'm not – I don't mean like Caucasian. I'm talking like literal paper white skin. No visible nose, unblinking eyes, a single hair on his head, and red dots on his cheeks. He looks kind of like a mime if you think about it. Uh, Chaozu's appearance is inspired by a Zirin. Is it Zirin or Zirin? 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 Okay. I was wrong both times. Uh, <laughs> or a paper person. These are dolls created by Taoist priests to be burned during funerals alongside things like money, clothes, and tools uh, for the deceased to have in the afterlife. Zirin are most often created as a small child or pair of children to serve as assistants to the deceased. They have white skin because they're made of paper and rosy red cheeks to depict their youth. Hmm. Another piece of the Chaozu puzzle falls into place. But Toriyama, being the well-educated man we know he is, doesn't know any of this culture. So where where does he get the inspiration? Well, in Fist of Fury, Bruce Lee's character is shown mourning the loss of his martial arts master. And in the background, for several minutes, there's a boy-sized Jiren with white skin and red cheeks. We know Toriyama has seen a ton of Bruce Lee movies. The concept of Ijiren gains real footing in pop culture in the early 80s in Japan and China when kung fu films begin more explicitly incorporating Taoist culture with action and slapstick humor for distinctly Asian-flavored cinema. In the 1982 film The Dead and the Deadly, starring another Toriyama favorite, Samuel Hung, Hung's character is a Taoist who suspects murder and dresses as a Ren to sneak into a funeral. And for about a quarter of the film, there's a bunch of like humor and action based around Hung sneaking around as a Ren and fights with him in disguise. But if Ren are depicted in pop culture or at least the pop culture that Toriyama would consume, so slapstick and action oriented, why is Chaozu so deadpan, lifeless and almost unthinking? Fist of Fury is a good Bruce Lee movie, by the way. That's... I mean, it's a Bruce Lee movie. That kind of goes without saying. <laughs> I, I I think I think I mentioned that like on one of our very recent episodes that it's like the one where it really starts to showcase a lot of his uh, good like comedic timing that he has. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's 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 some really great scenes with with Bruce Lee like in in costumes and stuff in in Fist of Fury, and then there's obviously like lots of good action and and fighting. So Fist of Fury is a good one. So yeah. So why is why is Chaozu like this deadpan lifeless thing? Well, because his appearance is inspired by a Jiren, but his characteristics are inspired by a Chinese monster called a Jiangxi. Jiangxi are pretty similar to Western zombies in a lot of ways. They are simple-minded, reanimated corpses that function on a subconscious level and when utilized in their more monstrous form have usually run amok or gone out of control or something and they attack people. 
Also, though this is a little more similar to vampires than zombies, you can only kill a Jiangxi by stabbing it through the heart. But still, that like specific singular point of destruction is is a common enough thread. Western zombies are, you have to destroy the head. A Jiangxi, you have to destroy the heart. Makes Jiangxi sense. evolved from the importance of feng shui and Tao that the the importance that feng shui and Taoism place on funerary rites or funeral rites and burial sites. If you're not buried in accordance with feng shui, your descendants will have bad luck. And so wealthy people would have themselves and their migrant workers physically shipped back home. But peasants incapable of affording shipping containers and drivers and transporting corpses would have a Taoist priest who would reanimate the corpse for them and send it back to its home place of birth. Interesting. (laughs) So then Taoists believe, and we talked about this a little bit, that there's like two consciousnesses that your, your waking consciousness and your inferior consciousness. They believe that they, that everyone has an inferior consciousness that inhabits the body prior to birth and sometimes does not wish to leave after death. That was We talked about that in the Ozaru episode. We talked about your Shishen, your knowing self, versus your Fu Yuanshen, or your assistant spirit selves. So if you want to learn more about that concept, you can head back and listen to that episode. It was episode number seven. This time I actually remember which episode it was. <laughs> Nice. Now, in this Taoist tradition, because this inferior consciousness comes into existence while you're still in a fetal stage, it is a childlike consciousness eternally. And thus, Jiangxi being inhabited only by this childlike inferior consciousness are forever childlike. In order to prevent Taoist, in order to prevent these corpses, these reanimated corpses from running amok, Taoist priests place a seal or talisman over the face of them. But a Jiangxi has had that talisman either removed, corrupted, or placed by someone who wants to puppeteer it. You know, so like it's a, it's like a corrupted. It's a, it's a thing that that a bad guy can can puppeteer them. Like okay. puppeteer this monstrous corpse rather than send them back home to rest. So thus the the Jiangxi, the like monsters, are reanimated corpses that have run amok. But run is a little bit of a misnomer. Because in order to make the body easier to transport, the legs of the dead in in Taoist tradition are bound together. Thus Jiangxi have to hop around with their arms held out for balance. And if you go back and rewatch that fight between Chaozu and Krillin, he walks around with his arms like stiff straight out at his side or straight out in front of him. And he doesn't walk. He like hops around or he moves like just forward and backward without like walking. (laughs) So this is why Chaozu is so stiff and zombie like in his movements. Again, though, we always have to wonder where Toriyama gets this from, as he's not one who really knows these cultural under- underpinnings very often. In fact, we more or less assume that unless he's specifically saying one, like he often does with Journey to the West references, he doesn't know it from cultural history. 
And of course, our most obvious place of inspiration is from the movie starring his favorite actors. Sammo Hung first plays with the idea of a Jiangxi in the movie Ghost Beats Ghost in 1980, briefly featuring Jiangxi. In 1985, Hung produces the movie Mr. Jiangxi, where a Taoist priest and his two bumbling disciples attempt to gain control over a wayward Jiangxi. This movie is a massive hit, spawning four sequels, a TV series, and over 50 copycat films in the 80s alone. It creates a subgenre of film and establishes tropes that the copycats use to this day. It's basically the Night of the Living Dead of Jiangxi genre. I can't believe I got through that without mispronouncing it. <laughs> uh, another way Jiangxi and zombies are similar, they both have, have had most of what their cultures think of as their key elements established by movies. In 1986, the film Kung Fu Wonder Child has several Jiangxi who look exactly like Chao Tzu. All this evidence adds up to a simple fact. Chao Tzu is a Jiangxi. We don't know what his life was before he died or how he died or how he managed to break free of his control and become somewhat more independent. Though, like kind of like one of those Jiren, he's never really seen outside the context of being an attendant to Tien. But because he's a Jiangxi, we know Chao Tzu will forever and always remain a child. Yeah, that's I. It's it's kind of interesting that these two different types of zombies essentially have a lot of their like key things that people think of established by movies, and especially by movies that come, I'll say, relatively contemporarily right i mean night of the living dead is from the 60s sure but movies culturally had been around and had been doing zombies since the like 40s but they were always voodoo zombies right we've talked i feel like we've talked about this before too like the movie uh, I Walked With a Zombie and then I think there's also another movie called like White Zombie those are about like voodoo's people taking over like and making a, a voodoo zombie and as voodoo zombie if you don't know it is super similar to a zombie but it's not a reanimated corpse like i could turn yeah. you into a zombie right if, they're more like puppets like you were talking earlier yeah and then you know night of the living dead comes along in 69 i think or 68 i probably should know that but anyways sounds it, right <laughs> <laughs> night of the living dead comes along it establishes, like, if you say the word zombie now, 68, people, if you say the word zombie to people, they know, like, you're thinking Walking Dead, Night of the Living yep. Dead, you're thinking a corpse that comes back to life that wants to eat people, maybe eat their brains, definitely can only be killed by killing it in the brain, slow-moving, like, it's all the Night of the Living Dead things. Yep. And... Apparently, I don't know a whole lot about Jiangxi, obviously. I've, I've like never seen any of these movies. But what's established as being the cultural touchstones of a Jiangxi is also established in a movie. And that's that, that Mr. Jiangxi. Like, it's just so interesting that like the parallels there. Again, it's one of those things you, you talk about that like the like everything we think of as being werewolf folklore is like from movies. Yeah, that's true. And a lot of what we think of as vampire folklore is established from movies also. Like, vampires have so many more weaknesses in traditional folklore than they do in movies. Like, I know one of the 
things is they can't help but count things. Oh, that makes a certain Muppet make a lot more sense. (laughs) Oh, yeah. And so, like, you're supposed to, and and specifically seeds for some reason, it's like, I, I, for some reason it sticks in my brain that a vampire, like, if you think a vampire is, like, coming to your house at night, Mm -hmm. you're supposed to throw mustard seeds onto the roof of your house. The vampire then is, like, compelled to count them. He will count them all night long, and obviously, it might be just, the mustard seed thing might be more of, you can throw, like, a handful of them, and you're throwing thousands. Yeah. And he'll count them, and the sun will come up and destroy him, because he can't stop counting them until he counts them all. So they have OCD. (laughs) Yes. And that's like a thing that's never talked about in any movie. There's a lot more interesting, weird, folkloric stuff that goes into a lot of these things that are dropped in the movies for various reasons or things that are invented for the movies. I think the silver stuff for werewolves is like purely from movies. That's just an excuse to be able to shoot werewolves. (laughs) (laughs) So all all that stuff is like, it's always just cool to me when like, Stuff like that happens, right? You know, because vampires have been around for forever. So have werewolves. So have zombies. So have Jiangxi. But then it's not until the movies come along that we get all of their this culture that we think of when we think of those things. And I always just find that interesting, like, how fast and almost permanently a cultural mindset can completely change. That is true. Uh, But so back to Chao Tzu, he's also partially inspired by Prince Neja. And if you remember, we actually already talked about Prince Neja in our sleeping princess in devil's castle commentary episode. We have a couple of callback, couple of new pieces on Neja though, because obviously I forget what was the name i don't remember the name of that character anymore but the the big red demon who flew around on the fire wheels ah yes hard to forget that description he's obviously like more more i think physically maybe inspired by neja especially with the fire wheels because that's like what prince neja is known for flying around on but neja is very good friends with a character named erlang shen who is an inspiration point for Tien, and more on that in our forthcoming Tian Shin Han episode. Stay tuned next time. <laughs> and Neja is thought of child, thought of as childlike. He's often depicted as a child, and he can fly. So these traits then transfer to Chao Tzu as well. Why does Chao Tzu have a single hair? Well, it could be that he's inspired by Bunraku puppets, which are traditional Japanese puppets. And Toriyama has seen Bunraku shows, and he's trying to show us that Chao Tzu is something of a puppet with limited independence. But it's also most likely for a joke. The joke being that because he's a uh, Jiangshan and... He will never get any older. He will always be a child. He'll never grow any new hair or change. He'll never get anything new hair because he's undead. 
he has one, and that's better than what Krillin has. <laughs> that's going to be a, a, a common theme in Krillin's life. <laughs> but uh, as mentioned, Jiangxi can be defeated by stabbing them through the heart, and typically this is done with peach tree wood. And if you want to hear a little bit more about why the peach is considered sacred in Eastern culture, listen to our Tao Pai Pai episode, which was episode... I don't remember anymore, sadly. All the callbacks in this episode. <laughs> See, it all builds. That's the, like... it's There's tons of layers. Like an onion why, or a parfait. That's, that's why... that Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> that's why Toriyama is such a prolific writer. Uh, really, really thinks about his his process, and <laughs> <laughs> but Zhang Shi are also weak to brooms as they sweep away the dust of death, and they're also weak to being hit with rice as it burns them. They're also weak to having their magic seal or their talisman reapplied, or asking them to count. Oh. Counting interrupts their subconsciousness and their ability to function on pure instinct. It makes them incapable of using their powers and causes them to be vulnerable to attack. Oh, it's almost like he planned that or something. <laughs> so, it's so, like, I found all of this so interesting. Because heading into this, I never cared about chaozu at all i could see that depending on where you where you actually first are introduced to dragon ball i could see that he's just like tien's weird little dude that hangs around with him all the time i always thought of him as like his manservant or something yeah and i was or like a like a like a knight would have a page like and then it turns out I that's basically him. what he is right because he's inspired by those Jiren, who like you're supposed to burn a Jiren, and then that becomes like your deceased person's page in the afterlife forever, mm -hmm. which is like a, it's weird because that's one of those that's one of those things where that's like common in Taoist culture, and you talk about like having a boy child slave for eternity. <laughs> It's well, messed up. Uh, setting aside the child slavery thing for a second, <laughs> learning for me, learning this stuff was interesting because there were other characters in in anime and manga that I started to think about um, that also kind of fit that that Jiren sort of like assistant or whatever. But the one that really stuck out in my mind because I had no context for these characters before this, and now that I do have context for them, they make a lot more sense. Mm -hmm. uh, in the anime Demon Slayer, there is. A gentleman who basically like runs the good guy operation and he he suffers from like this debilitating disease that runs through his family and he has two little girls that are always like with him and like assist him with different things because he can't do them himself and they have similar characteristics to Chaozu. they are very pale skinned they have white hair and they have those those big like gaudy eyes oh. and they're you know children you know they're basically child servants so now having this context of the jiren that makes a little bit more sense to me now whereas before i'm like why does this man have two children with him all the time this is kind of weird <laughs> but now culturally speaking like that that makes a lot more sense to me right yeah and that's that's like 
we'll say this like a billion times. It's going to be like broken record stuff. But even if Toriyama doesn't know a lot of this fully consciously, it's just stuff that you pick up because that's the culture you grow up in. Sure. Where you see things like that as being common. And so you just incorporate it into your work. Because that's, you know, you, you write what you know, you know? Absolutely. And, and yeah, so that was, that was interesting to me to like, it's like, it seems like at some point, because then that's the other thing kind of about Chao Tzu. At some point, it feels like most characters in Dragon Ball undergo some sort of fairly significant change, right? Yamcha mm-hmm. used to be a desert bandit, then becomes yep. more of a hero and then now is like a baseball player. <laughs> Piccolo used to be evil and now is like a kindly old sage, essentially. Like, kind of, you know? He's, he's Gohan's adoptive father. Yeah. <laughs> Gohan used to be like a, a warrior and now he's a nerd. <laughs> he started out as a crybaby. Krillin, Krillin is like, used to be a, a warrior and now he is part of the problem. He's a cop. <laughs> oh damn! Uh, but you know, like villains, like or villains become heroes, and people change alliances, and like characters under they they undergo some sort. Like Tien used to be evil, and now he's he's good, and like these characters all kind of undergo some fairly significant, even like personality change too. But Chao Tzu has just always been. Tien's tag along and that's it. And learning that like about the Jiren. And so that's why he's like an attendant, but then also that he will never change because he's a Zhang Shi. You're like, Oh, that makes sense now. Yeah. Context folks. It's important. And so now I find Chao Tzu like, a more interesting character, like a character I'm going to keep my eyes on as we keep going through Z and Super and, and once we come across him again and again and little spots here and there and see if he still keeps like all of those other things kind of the same. Like he still is very stiff when he moves and he's, st- you know, like all of that kind of stuff. It'd be interesting. There's going to be more callbacks in the future. Probably. <laughs> Say it ain't so. But it'll be interesting to keep an eye on that moving forward. I agree. And I, I will also be doing the same. And not just for Chaozu, but for, for a lot of these characters that we're learning more about as well. Yeah. And now I feel like I have a whole new like sub-genre of zombie movies that I need to see. Agreed. Those sound pretty interesting. <laughs> Especially like like kung fu zombie movies? I'd be all right with that. That sounds like a lot of fun, honestly. <laughs> and and I mean, so that's that's like a like add that to my letterboxed watch list, you know. <laughs> right. And yeah, I think if you if you Google Kung Fu Wonder Child, because you know, we mentioned that's a movie where there's uh some <clears throat> some uh Jiangxi in it, it's like the I will say maybe 20th image maybe not that far even it's probably like the 12th image down 
it there's two little kids who have their arms straight out in front of them. We'll try and post this on our Facebook page, assuming I remember when this episode drops. But you can look at look them up, and they are they look a lot like Chaozu. There you have it, folks. Photographic proof. We're right. <laughs> but so that's that's Chaozu. I mean, there's not a like you know a ton to really dig your teeth into, but there is like some really interesting stuff about this character that I just always thought of as the dude who blows himself up like a idiot. <laughs> Which now that you know that he's already dead, kind of kind of like dulls the impact of that, right? Yeah, a little bit actually. That's interesting. Uh another thing I really liked was the I I, I did like the fight between Chaozu and Krillin. Because I thought it was kind of entertaining. We got a little bit of the silliness from the first tournament in this one, which is a nice, I guess, break from the sort of constant ramping up of tension between Goku and Tien. Mm-hmm. But I also really liked it because it, it kind of sets up for the uh, Goku versus Krillin fight, which we'll, we'll t- talk about next episode, where it shows off kind of the difference between Goku and Krillin. Goku's sort of brute forces his way in a lot of instances or does something really cheeky like copying the enemy's moves right in front of them and you can see krillin's more of a thinker when he fights he quickly comes up with countermeasures to nullify whatever advantage that his opponent has and then he also uh, like with the math thing kind of like we saw with the the, the vampire in the baba arc mm-hmm. like he has this sort of implicit understanding and maybe it's his training as a monk up to that point of of like what the weaknesses of these people are and then exploiting those to his own benefit yeah and he just i think a lot of that too like you know we talked about like when we talked about the red ribbon army and how toriyama does a a good job of like exposing things about his villains psychology through Mm -hmm. their fights with the heroes Yes. Well, he also is doing the same for the heroes in, in while he's doing that. And I think a lot of what Krillin does in battle when he gets to being more of a thinker and even occasionally taking, I don't know about underhanded, but you know, he, he exploit, he's, he's exploitative he's, of weaknesses. Yeah. He's, he can be pretty cutthroat when he needs to be. Yeah. Cutthroat's a really good word, word to use is because he doubts his own strength so much. He doesn't ever think he's as strong as he is. He, you know, when he sees Goku defeat someone easily in a battle, especially like this happens in the first tournament, or when he does so himself, he always says, oh, that person must not have been very strong. And it's always like Jackie Chan or Master Roshi who kind of comes in and is like, no, that person like won a tournament. You guys are just that much stronger. Yeah. And so because Krillin has this underdog mentality and this lack of self-confidence, he is always thinking of, all right, I got to I got to try to find an advantage here to exploit because I can't win head on. Right. He tries to think around his problem, whereas Goku's more the, I'm just going to plow right through it. <laughs> Consequences be damned. 
Krillin thinks around his problem and Goku like feels around it, you know, like, yeah, I'd say that's fair. That's, that's a good comparison. I, I like all that kind of stuff. Whenever you can like the, the best fights in Dragon Ball, aside from the ones that are just like really well animated, but like the ones that like stick with you and that you kind of remember are the ones where it's some sort of opposing ideologies or you learn something about the characters through the fight. We we learn throughout the cell throughout the fight against Cell that that Gohan has been has been sitting on this untapped potential for years. We learn a lot about Frieza every time he is fighting anyone. <laughs> <laughs> Man really likes to talk about himself. And you know we learn we learn a lot about Vegeta and Vegeta's like sort of true heart and his true feelings during the the Majin Buu arc and his fights against Majin Buu. Those are the ones that, like, like they always stick out to you. You don't, I don't, at least, quite so much always remember, like, Mystic Gohan versus Super Buu. Mm-hmm. Because you don't really learn anything about any characters through that. It's just a, like, good, fun fight. Right. Maybe when we get to that and we look into it or something, we'll find something that we latch onto that's, you know, oh, this actually is an interesting cultural or uh, psychological element, but you don't see it at its face value. Sure. The stuff in Dragon Ball that I always really like is the stuff where you, there's a little more going on. I, I agree, and I would go even a little bit further. It, it not just those aren't the best fights in just Dragon Ball. Those are those are really any kind of fight scene, it, whether it be a movie, a comic book, uh, an anime, or or a Saturday morning cartoon. It, it feels more impactful and it has a lot more resonance for the audience. I think when it's more than just trading punches, it's about figuring out whose ideology is the more correct in this situation. Yeah, for sure. And and then, you know, also having stakes and know and knowing sure. those what those stakes are and having them be very clearly defined and also cooked medium rare. <laughs> <laughs> that's cuz that's the correct way to cook it. <laughs> but, Anybody who does differently, you're wrong. But no, I mean that's yeah, you know, you, you layer on some some stakes on top of uh, some like ideology, ideological battling, and and then also good action, and that's what makes for a, a good fight. Um, Absolutely. And so far, this this tournament's had some bangers, man. Yeah, and even in the even in like the goofier ones, like Jackie Jackie Chun versus Man Wolf, there's like <laughs> like interesting stuff happening in that. Yeah, like Incel versus normal person. I don't know anything else about Chaozu or zombies or. I have a better understanding of Chaozu. I have more respect for Chaozu, and uh, zombies are awesome. That's all I got. I really, I really like zombie movies. I've seen. I will. I'm one of those people. Like whenever there's always, it seems like every once in a while, maybe every year, maybe every other year. A zombie movie comes out and you get like the the flood of people saying, I'm usually so sick of zombie movies, but here's finally a good one. That's there's 
like there's lots of good zombie movies and Mm -hmm. there's good new ones being made all the time did you did you see train to busan yes i did i love that movie that that's like a, a really good one like the battery is a 2012 movie that is like it's it and this is like one of those ones that goes i'll say against the the stereotype of like oh anyone with no money can make a zombie movie and then it ends up being crap uh this movie was probably made for about $45 oh the the battery and it's awesome it's just like it's like a really well written it's about it's about a pitcher and catcher and therefore they are a battery that's what you call a pitcher and catcher uh, in baseball okay. and they are together during the zombie apocalypse but they're not like best best friends they were just a pitcher and a catcher oh so this is basically like just co-workers <laughs> yeah and so they have to try and survive the zombie apocalypse um it's really good have you seen one cut of the dead no i haven't seen that one that's from 2017 that is it's one of those like in one take movies all i'll really say about it is for the first like 30 40 minutes i was like oh this is like this is like fine but it seems something i was like something seems kind of off about this like it's too cheap or something like uh, it's not clicking for me and then there actually is a twist like halfway through the movie and all of the offness about it starts to make sense and it's kind of awesome the girl with all the gifts that was from 2016. That's a really good twist on zombies. Overlord. That was 2018. Yeah, there's like always good zombie movies coming out. And people just... People get a little blind to it. Because like everyone got sick of The Walking Dead quite quick. Because <laughs> it well, turned quite bad. <laughs> I mean, like we've been talking how there's all these zombie movies. Like the premise is is pretty uh durable but i feel like there's only so much you can do with any particular set of characters and setting in, in with that kind of genre the movies fare better because it's like a one it's like one big chunk you digest it and you're done whereas with like the walking dead it was just this series and they had to keep going with it and it just kind of suffered from the same thing you see in a lot of TV shows where it's it's pretty clear that maybe it should have ended a couple seasons ago, but they're still trying to keep it going, which I guess is a pretty good metaphor for The Walking Dead, really, when you think about it. <laughs> so that was zombie cast. <laughs> Wait, did we did we go through a dimensional wall or something? Are, are we on a different podcast now? What happened? <laughs> that, was... that was I'm supposed to be talking about anime. What's going on? <laughs> This is this has been Undead Forum. <laughs> well, listeners, we've arrived at the locale for the columns of smoke rising to the skies, and they're just holes. Lava's flowing down into these holes, and steam is shooting up to the skies. And these holes are massive in diameter. Our ship could easily fit inside of them. A small village could probably fit inside each one of them. This calls for further investigation. Oh, I have an even worse feeling about this. Come on, recruit. Where's your thirst for adventure? After flying over the surface of a lava planet for hours, the only thing I'm thirsty for is a glass of water. 
Well, that lava has to be steaming off something as it hits the bottom of those holes. Maybe there's water down there. Can't we just go back to the ship and get a drink and get out of here? We have a duty to investigate, Recruit. According to our scouters, the power readings are actually further along this bearing, but now we have two possible routes to follow. And here it comes. I suggest we split up. I'll continue over the surface, you head into the pit. Yep, I knew it. What wonders will Bikini find inside the bowels of Zeti 3? Will we find the warrior we're looking for? Find out next time and help us achieve our final forum. is written and produced by Tom Gwelly. It is performed by Dan Kinney and Tom Gwelly. Our webmaster is Dan Kinney. Our theme music is provided by YouTube content creator GVG Kit. Want to learn more about the Dragon Ball universe, including concept art, behind-the-scenes interviews, and recommendations from Jelly and Bikini? Connect with us on social media. Like us on Facebook. Follow us on Twitter at Final Forum Pod. Make sure to subscribe, rate, and review wherever you receive your podcasts. And of course, make sure to share with your friends and family and help us spread the word of the glory of Lord Frieza. The Frieza Force thanks you for your listenership.